Hello, everyone. This is Marcin Drost. Welcome again to another episode of The Game. Today, I am excited to have Mr. Jimmy Rex with us. And Jimmy is someone who is best known for his career in real estate. The man has spent over 15 years in the business. He sold over 2,000 properties. I actually think he sold one of the most, if not the most expensive house in Utah for, was it $35 you know, million? <laughs> That's, that must be a big house. And, you know, having accomplished what he did in the real estate space, he went out and built a real estate coaching business to show uh, aspiring realtors how to, how to build a business. He's got courses. Uh, one of them, I think, was called the 100K Agent uh, Blueprint to show people how to really step up their social media game and, and help them build out you know, their own clients. And uh, 2019, he wrote a book. Uh, he's had his own podcast. He's had over 10 million people uh, listen to the podcast. The resume goes on, traveled. We were just talking about it, Jimmy. You've been to over 60 countries. And, uh, you know, I was actually really excited to read about some of the charitable work you do with uh, children's charities as well. So we'll, we'll talk about all that. But first and foremost, uh, Mr. Rex, welcome to the game. Hey, appreciate it, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I looked you up. I, uh, you know, really took a, took a minute to figure out, you know, what kind of people uh, would add value to the people that are part of our community and the way you position yourself, the way you market yourself, the real estate business, uh, entrepreneurship as a whole, uh, some of the content you've put out, uh, just really happy to have you here. There's so many places we can start, but why don't we start with the 120,000 in debt <laughs> when you were a kid? Because was, yeah. yeah. I was really ambitious when I was younger, you know, and when we're all kids, you kind of have this idea. I want to be rich when I'm older. I want to make money, you know, but you don't really know what that's going to look like. And I remember when I was 21, I just got back from a two-year service mission to Mexico and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I started applying all these jobs and I ended up finding this company that sold meat door-to-door, -door, mm. uh, steak and chicken door-to-door. -door. And long story short, I started doing it. And I was, I mean, I had just been on that service mission where we would knock doors for 10 or 11 hours a day. Mm. And so this was a door-to-door -door, uh, sales job. And I mean, I, geez, like I could make it an hour and a half. I could usually make three to 500 bucks wow. selling steak and chicken door-to-door. -door. And so I started doing this and built it up and then started my own company. And I ended up partnering with the guy that had originally taught me. And he was from the Netherlands, there in your neck of the woods. Mm. And great guy, but he had some issues, had some drug problems and things like that. And I was pretty naive. I was a young kid. I'd never seen a drug in my life. And long story short, yeah, we were going to go big with this thing. We we're going to franchise it. Um, we we're going to have all these other offices. And I was full on making a plan to be retired by 30. Mm. And as we were doing this, we took out a bunch of bank loans and things like that. But because he was from the Netherlands, I had to put everything in my name. And so oh, yeah. I had all this debt built up and then we franchised it to this guy. And when the check cleared for the franchise fee, the dude that, and I'm like 22 at the time, keep in mind, like I'm just mm. baby doing all this. And my partner took all the money, took $35,000 of it and he disappeared for two weeks. Wow. And he went on a drug binge. When he came back, he was wearing the same clothes he was the day he left. And, he just started crying and I was crying. And I mean, this guy, we'd been together for about a year and a year, year and a half. And um, I just told him, I said, I can't handle this. Like I'm shutting it down. And, and so I asked him, you know, I never saw him again after that, but I got stuck with all the debt. I had all the loans. Uh -huh. So yeah, man, at 23, 22, 23, I had 120 grand debt. 
And then when you're 23, like every person I knew was wealthier than me because I had so much debt. Like if you even had no money or even you couldn't even get enough credit cards to get as much debt as I had. This was all loans I'd taken out and then money I owed to this guy that we franchised to. And so I just started working. I put a poster board behind my wall. I didn't want anyone to see it. So it was like behind my closet door Mm. and I wrote everybody I had debts to and how much. And then, and then that's when I really dove into real estate. And I was working 70, 80 hours a week. I was working so hard because every time I sold a house, I'd get a you know nice commission check and I'd right. pay 2,000 here, 4,000 here, 1,000 here, whoever I could. And I, every, I'd go behind my door and I'd cross it off on the, on the poster board. And <laughs> eventually after a couple of years, about a year and a half of this, I, I paid everybody off. And just when I thought I was ready to get ahead again, I was, you know, <laughs> that's when the real estate market collapsed. But thankfully, <laughs> I had like a year and a half first where I was able to make this money, learn how to do the business really well. Right. Kind of set me up as one of the top agents in the county, you know, um, because my my second year as a realtor, I sold 98 homes with just me and an assistant. And I think it was, you know, as a runner up for the salesperson of the year on the wow. Salt Lake Board of Realtors. And so it, it was that debt though, that was like, it's crippling debt. But what it was, was a gift because I, I was like, okay, like, I was desperate to get rid of it. I needed to get rid of it so bad. I didn't think I'd ever have any woman want to date me if I had debt. You know, that was ingrained mm-hmm. in me. And um, I, I thought, like, how am I ever going to get ahead again? And so I just worked so hard to be able to pay that off. But in the process, built myself up this really cool real estate business. So what I love about your story is that you came up against a situation. I mean, 120000 is a lot of debt to anybody today, oh, yeah. let alone. With nothing to show for it. Yeah. With it's not with- house or anything yeah like you got nothing like you might as well have gone to vegas or or done something with it right but you took that burden and rather than saying oh too bad so sad you know go bankrupt or do what you know most guys do you know you took that and you said you know what this is going to make me better and you took that as fuel and for most people the easy thing would have been oh you know i'm a victim and you know, it sucks. And yeah. So well, it's interesting that you say that I had a, we had another partner that he was one of our sales guys, but he wanted to buy into the company when we were building it up. And he bought in, I think he was either 35 or 40 grand. And he, you know, was an owner with me and the other guy, Herman. Hmm. But when everything collapsed, he lost it. He was so mad and so hmm. pissed off at Herman for stealing our money. And he ended up bankrupting out of his debt because he had taken the 40 grand he invested. I didn't know this. He'd put it on a credit card, mm. an American Express card, like 25 grand of it. And so he ended up bankrupting off out of like 35 or 40 grand. Like I had three times as much debt as he did. And he ended up being depressed for several years. Like he got out of it and ended up doing good again. But like he really let that control him instead of just taking ownership of it and saying, you know what, screw it. I know this didn't work out how I wanted to, but I'm going to go and make this work now. So it was kind of contrasting. We had these two paths that we get to decide which one we want to take when something like that happens. So what made you take the path that you took rather than the one that he took? Yeah, I just said, I, look, I took the money. Like I used it. I borrowed the money. Like it's yeah. back. Like that's honestly, it was just my yeah. character. To be honest, I, I just said, I said, look, I took the money. I'll pay it back. When the real estate market collapsed, I'd bought 13 homes in two years. So from 2005 mm-hmm. to 2007, I bought 13 houses. My mentor at the end of 2006 was like, sell everything. You need to get rid of these. I got stuck with two of them. I was upside down about 100 to 125 grand on each one. And back mm-hmm. then, interest rates were six and three quarters, six mm-hmm. and a quarter. So mm-hmm. I had my payments on each house was 2,500 and I'm renting mm-hmm. for 1,500. So I was yeah. losing, I'm losing a thousand bucks a month per house that I don't have. So I had to sell them. But I didn't want to do a short sale because, again, I said, hey, I borrowed the money. 
and even though they were doing predatory lending and all that kind of stuff, I should never should be able to get the loans. But long story short, I was able to communicate with my banks. Instead of doing a short sell, what I did is I had to sell them for whatever I could. And then the remaining debt, I had to take on at a 0% interest rate. So mm. as soon as I got that 120 grand paid off, like no shit, dude, I got saddled with another <laughs> 160 grand debt right after that. It was like a year later. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. How does everyone get a, anyone get a, <laughs> so I had these two homes that I no longer had, but I had the loans. And thankfully I started flipping homes. I had a couple of big wins, 50 grand, 40 grand. I paid those off actually pretty quick. Mm. But as soon as I got my 120 grand paid off, man, I got stuck with another 160 grand. I, I got an expensive education on uh, finances. <laughs> you got a couple hundred thousand dollar entrepreneurs MBA. I did, I did. Yeah, I should have just gone to Harvard. <laughs> well, I listened to you and I think to myself, one of my businesses, you know, you, you learn about cash. It sounds like you were learning about cash flow or lack thereof at, at different times. Yeah, like, I, oh, it was so bad but back then. But <laughs> I was young. Like, nobody told me different. My broker was the one that told me to buy all these. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if the cash flow, you get a commission when you buy it because you can yeah. put zero down. No shit. You'd buy a home for 220 grand. You'd say, if they were ask, asking 230, You'd say, I'll pay you 240, but you got to pay me an extra 10 grand commission. So they would cut me a check at closing for 20 grand with nothing down. Like I got paid $20,000 to own this house. It's insane. Like no wonder the whole damn thing collapsed, but like anybody could do this. And so I didn't care about cash flows. I didn't care about now the way we, because I helped over 350 investors, me and my partner Tyra last year to buy an investment property. Right. Number one thing on every house that we sell is cash flow. If it doesn't have great cash flow and future appreciation, we're not buying the house. Yeah. But like back then, it was almost embarrassed about it, but it was like the appreciation was going so high and it was like the yeah. Wild West. And unless you went through that, you'll never understand it. But everybody was making so much money buying real estate that you just want to get your hands on as much as you could. You probably remember this too. Remember the whole learning an- annex thing, the conferences I do, and everybody yeah, it was peddling real estate. And like George Bush would be on yeah, it or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Random people. Yeah, yeah. Trump used to be the headliner before he Trump became- would do them. Yeah commander in chief here. And it was interesting because you had uh, so many people pushing on it and, you know, cash flow, like you said, just went out the window. And I remember sitting down with my financial planner and he said, Jimmy, just keep buying real estate. It's never gone down in value. Right. Like this was a guy that was like, I was putting my trust in and bless my, and back then, like too, it's not like today, like today there's so many podcasts and YouTube channels and experts out there, people that you can learn from hell. If you just take the stuff that I've put out about investing and just do that, yeah. You will make so much money investing. There's, you know, all these people that know they're doing that. Back when I was doing it, you didn't know where to look. I was buying books that were outdated. I remember yeah. like listening to CD sets. I had like Carlton Sheets, No Money Down and Robert Allen, like these guys that don't even exist anymore. Their programs yeah. literally don't work. But that's all we had to educate us. And so like, yeah, nowadays, 2020, it's so much easier to find investments and, and to learn how to do it the right way. But I just didn't have anybody teaching me and bless my heart. I was trying as best I could, but man, I, <laughs> I was falling on my ass pretty hard. So let, let's walk through your real estate journey because it's interesting. So you started out, you, you, you had that burden of debt. You became a realtor, you, you paid the debt off. Then you continued to sell houses and then you were flipping your own houses. And yeah, I was just doing all of it because it's all part of real you're estate. You're doing all of it all at once. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You're going full throttle. And then the collapse happened. You got stuck with a bunch of debt. So walk me through, you know, step two after that. 
Yeah, I mean, when the market started to turn, you know, thankfully, I had 13 homes, like I said, in November of 2006. But my mentor, he was like, sell everything, sell everything. And right. so I got rid of all of them. But the one I was living in and one I was renting, that's why I only got stuck with two of them. Um, mm -hmm. I actually broke even or made money on all the rest in time because it didn't really collapse till August of 07. But anyway, so I had kind of prepared myself for a changing market. In 2007, to give you an idea, I sold 98 homes. I had one assistant. We were crushing it. Like I was printing money. Like I had checks in my desk. I forgot to cash. Like money was coming everywhere. I remember one time I got a call from a title company. They're like, hey, uh, where do you want us to send the check? And I'm like, uh, what was the name on the client? And or like, I'm like, what city was it? And they're like, Saratoga Springs. I'm like, what the hell did I sell it in Saratoga Springs? I'm like, how much is the check for? They're like 13,000, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I didn't sell anything in Saratoga Springs. I was like, what's the name of the guy? And it was like some dude that I had showed the home to one time seven months earlier, but I got registered as the agent and they paid me 13 grand. Like it was that crazy. Money was coming wow. in from everywhere. And then all of a sudden, it was as if literally somebody just turned a faucet off. It was mm -hmm. like, you couldn't sell a home. You couldn't give a home away. And so in 2008, to contrast that, I made three times as many calls. I listed 187 for sale by owners that year and sold like 15 of them. Like wow. it was brutal. I mean, I was, I had 40 or 50 listings at a time. You had maybe one or two showings a week. Like uh, nobody had money. Nobody was buying. Everybody was upside down 20%. But the way I got through that was I cut my budget I'm down to next to nothing. That was when I really realized how much money I was giving away trying to make you know, build my real estate team. Right. And I got very slim on money. I started counting every dollar. I got my budget, took it from like 18 grand a month to like four grand a month. My mm. assistant, I let one of them go. The other one went to part-time and I just barreled down. And for the next year and a half, two years, I just grinded and grinded. And I actually worked harder than ever in 2008, 2009. Like those are the years I worked the hardest I'd ever worked. But that was kind of like, for me, I was just like, all right, let's go to work. And that's why I'm not afraid of any downturns now. Yeah. Like 2008 in real estate, good luck. There's, you will never find a worse time than that. Like there was mm. nothing worse. Every person you talked to was upside down 20%. Yeah. And nobody wanted to buy anything. But so, yeah, I got through that and survived. I don't use the word thrive, but you know, I was the number one agent in my office and I was still telling my assistant a couple of times he had to wait to cash his check. <laughs> Rising tide raises all ships, but it also comes out and it impacts everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So with 0809, what were some of the new skills that you had to learn to be relevant in the space? Yeah, I mean, the number one skill you had to learn was be brutally honest with people. Like okay. you had to, you could not overprice a home. And if their home was overpriced, I mean, I have, I'm very like detailed on my numbers. I knew okay. how many contacts I would make, how many hours I prospected, how many leads I followed up with, how many appointments I went on, how much dollars. I knew to the dollar how much I made per commission as well. So okay. I could trace it back and I knew I made how much I made per phone call that I prospected. I knew I made $34 per call or $56 per call or whatever. Okay. So I was very detailed. And one of the stats we had to start keeping track of every week was price reduction calls. I literally uh, had to track how many calls I made to get my seller to drop their price. And they'd be right. like, look, I bought this for 310. They're at 275 right now. And I'm like, I know, but the neighbor just sold for 240. Like, you've got to get your price down. We're not going to sell this. Wow. Well, I can't sell it. Well, do you know anybody you could borrow some money from? Do you have any savings? Like, this is the conversations we were having every single week. It Unreal. was brutal, man. But I had to get brutally honest. And I just got very disciplined. I just said, you know what? I can't control like the sales. I can control what I do every day. And so I got very focused and very motivated on what I could do. And so every day I didn't miss for about a three year span. I didn't miss a day of making my prospecting calls three or four hours every single day. Hmm. 
So 2008 contrast to 2020, uh, do you see, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going with this, right? Like what are, what yeah, are dude, the, I, I got 17 deals under contract this week and I spent my whole morning just decorating my trunk of my Tesla for the uh, trunk or treat for my buddy's birthday party, you know, like his little kid's birthday party and deals are just coming. I mean, no, it, it is that different though, man. It's like 2020 is insane. Like everybody's buying houses, you know, you can still, because of interest rates being so low, like, mm. you know, it really helps the affordability for everybody. Yeah. Like the same house that I bought for 250,000 with a six and three quarter loan and an eight and a quarter second loan, my mortgage on that, like if I were to get the same amount of mortgage today, I could probably buy a $650,000 house to give you an idea. And so right. like people are just buying. And so like, even though price appreciation has been so nice, but yeah, it's just a completely different ball game um, than what it used to be. So with, uh, and, and maybe this is, you know, bordering on speculative, but I mean, I know in, at least up in Canada here, inventory is down, demand is up. You know, we do business in the U.S. all over the place as well. I see the same demographics. Is there going to be a point in your opinion where things are going to slow up a little bit and turn the other way, like these furloughs and the mortgages, all that stuff? Like where, where's your Could head? Be, yeah, I mean, you're going to have certain areas where you're going to see that a lot more than other areas. So okay. like if you live in, um, a democratic state right now, like just being honest, nothing to mm -hmm. do with politics, but they're allowing furloughs for up to a year. You don't right. have to pay the rents and stuff like people aren't paying, but that's going to catch up eventually, right? Other cities like in Utah, I think, I mean, we're blessed here in Utah. I think we had 92% of people still made their mortgage payment and their rent on time, both of them. And so oh, it's wow. like, you've got a really good number, even though mm. people didn't have to do it. And so I think here's the thing is I don't think we're going to have a huge downturn. And here's the reason why is everything is different today than it was in 2008. Like, yeah, we could end up seeing these foreclosures and stuff, but it's still so much cheaper to buy a home and people are so cash heavy right now mm. that they're still going to investors will just pick those up and rent them out just like they're doing with everything else. And so you're not going to have this huge downturn because the biggest difference is the affordability and it's still cheaper in almost every house you buy in most markets mm. to buy the home and get a mortgage than it would be to rent it. And the other difference is I talked about that no money down. You can't do that now. Any investment property that's yeah. been bought since 2009, they put at least 20% down. If you look at the market appreciation, like that's why everyone has 20 to 80% equity in these homes. Right. Won't be a sell-off like there was before. Yeah, it's, it's a different world today. So actually to that end, COVID. Let, let's talk post-COVID. You got the pivot. I know you, you got Instagram and you got your online marketing. But aside mm -hmm. from that, what else has COVID changed in your world? Like, are you doing anything else different other than the social media game? Or So again, thankfully in Utah, like we're pretty open. Like everything's right. pretty normal. Um, I think we have the lowest unemployment in the country right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I did decide like, yeah, I mean, you can do a lot more stuff over zoom and you know some of that kind of stuff now that we wouldn't do before but as far as real estate goes itself my business no it's been pretty much the exact same um i've got other businesses i'm a partner in that it's definitely changed some stuff mm -hmm. you know i'm a partner in a tequila bar uh, taco restaurant in vegas and we had that you know, we're still at 50 percent capacity but we're still turning a profit right now and so it's just a game of adapting it's we haven't even seen the economic effects of covid yet i don't mm -hmm. think because it's all kind of been punted down the field but at the end of the day, like it's creating these opportunities for a lot of people. A lot of my friends are having their best year ever in, in both in real estate and out of it. And so I don't know. I just tell people like, I think that you can always find a reason or an excuse for why this is causing certain things. But I think most people 
have been able to pivot fairly quickly and adapt fairly easily to the new world that is COVID right now. And I also think it's just going to keep getting a little bit better and better. Mm. You know, it's interesting. So many people that I talk to that are operating at a high level, whether their business got decimated or not, they all have this theme. They have this attitude of, you know what, whatever this is, it's just going to make me better. And then I've got a handful of people that, you know, the world's ending. <laughs> and well, and that's, you know, it's, it's sad because like, unfortunately, a lot of people, they're playing victim to things, whether it's, you know, the president or the COVID or whatever it might be, all these different things. And they get scared. And I don't think they want to be scared. Yeah. But they allow themselves to fall into this myth that their lives are going to be determined by what happens outside of their control. Yeah. It's just not. It's just like, regardless of the presidential election outcome on November 4th here in the United States, like me and my buddies will pick up and go to work. Like, we'll be fine. We're going to mm-hmm. figure it out. We'll adjust we'll do whatever that means for either side that wins. Yeah. There's people that legitimately think that every problem they have in their life is because of Donald Trump or because of Obama or these different things. Like, like yeah. grow the fuck up. Like, it's not because of them. <laughs> yeah. it's, you, know, you need to take control of your own life. That's what my whole book's about is like, you know, like we get to decide the outcome of our lives and we get to determine what our lives are going to look like. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people pushing this message, both the media and a lot of the, just yeah. the left, just saying it, like they're saying like, you need us to save you. Yeah. We're going to help you. We're going to give you money or this or that or yeah. whatever else. And it's like at your detriment, like that's going to be your own downfall. So it's just, it's a dangerous game. Anytime somebody tells you you're a victim, anybody tells you that you're being shorthanded, like, yeah, it's probably yeah. true. Like in, you can find truth that you're a victim, but it doesn't serve you regardless. So you need to pick up your bootstraps and go to work. Well, and the whole victim mentality, I mean, look, there's always people that are prejudiced and there's people that are victims in every set of circumstances, but in your life, you can find any set of circumstances for you are the victim and someone else is the oppressor. And then you can take a totally different set of circumstances and then you're the oppressor and they're the victim. So choosing that lifestyle, that mentality where you know, nothing happens to you, everything happens for you. And, you know, at the beginning of our podcast with that story, when you took that as fire and actually went with it, that's not the way of the world. Most people- Yeah, man, were, I had every reason, both times. Yeah. I could have been like, the bank screwed everybody. I'm not paying yeah. that back. Or I could have said, that guy screwed me. So like, no, what a terrible story if that's your story. Like, congratulations, like you can blame somebody else. But it's like, no, like the honor of my whole story, the funnest part of my story is that I worked my way out of those difficult times time and time again. And that's what built who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about your business now, because I know you've got your real estate business, you've got your team. I know you also do mentorship with realtors. So how do you find time for that? And how do you actually help other realtors build their business? Yeah, I mean, I surround myself with really good people. Like I've got okay. um, a guy on my team, Tyler, who's um, an investment specialist. And this dude, I, I, the other day, I, so I got really good at getting leads off of social media and then I built my business. So I don't have to spend those three or four hours prospecting every day now. So like I put a video up on Instagram the other day and I got 17 leads. And he sent me a text yesterday morning. He goes, bro, I got appointments set up with your people at 9, 10, 11, 12, 2.30 and 3.30. It was just like, boom, like this dude is so good at what he does. I find the best people and then I let him do the work, right? Like you either can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. And so I'm very good at letting go of the things that other people can do better or as good as I can. And so he kind of runs all my investor stuff. And, you know, I've got a really good real estate team that handles all the ins and outs. And then I've got a really good marketing guy that helps me with my podcast, my courses, you know, all the Instagram and social media stuff I'm doing. And so I've got really good people. I pay them well and just, they help me. They're an extension of me. And so people always joke, like, dude, I swear you got 36 hours in a day. 
what I do is I, I've just got really good people around me that, yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, I haven't heard it worded that way. You can have control but, or growth, but you can't have both. That's uh it's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I remember uh, Mario Andretti used to be the uh, F1 uh, Formula One uh, sure. driver. He used to say, you know, if everything's under control, you're not going fast enough. And it's basically a, a syntax of, of what you just said. But so then, you know, having multiple businesses, multiple employees, how do you keep everybody focused and moving in the same direction? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, one of my things is I don't hire B players. Like I always say to people that come on my real estate team, like I'm not going to talk you into going to work every day. Like I don't have to follow up with my guys. Like they're good. Like if I right. give them something, it's done. I don't have to worry about it. And so right. I hate micromanaging. I'm terrible at it. And so yeah. I just... You know, it's the old saying, like most people, they, you know, spend a lot more time hiring and then you have to spend a lot less time training. Like I just find great people and I compensate very well so that they don't mm. want to leave. Like they stay around because for me, I'd rather be surrounded by great people. If I send a client to somebody and I'm not a hundred percent sure they can get as good of an experience with them as they would with me, mm. I can't send that client. I don't want to give them a worse experience under my name. And so I find mm. people that are literally as good or better than me at what they're doing. And then I let them do their thing. So what is the most unorthodox way that you found somebody to come join your team before? Honestly, like I've just found them through friendships and I keep my eyes open. Like, so there's a, my marketing guy would be one, I guess. Like I just put a thing on Facebook and his wife hit me up and she's like, Hey, my husband, all that stuff you just said. And I'm like, really? Yeah. I was friends with her. I, I didn't really know him and he's been amazing. I mean, he's oh. I've been with me for three, three years now and he's, he's awesome. So I think what I'm hearing from you is because you put content out, you have a certain personality and demeanor, the people that come work with you, whether customers, employees, or, you know, contractors, or whatever it is, they know who they're dealing with and that's, they're subscribing to that. So they're self-qualifying themselves. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, it's, um, I was listening to what the hell was I listening to something the other day was talking about when he hires people, he said that he'll say to them when he hires them, he's like, look, here's kind of the expectation of the first few months on this job is going to be brutally hard. Here's what we're going to do. Like, we only want you if you're like totally into this, if not totally fine, but here's what we're going to do. We want to give right. it everything we have. And then from there, you know, you kind of go from there, but it's kind of the same way. Like people know with me what they're going to get, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. I have enough material out there. I've got 250 podcast episodes. I like got my YouTube channel and my Instagram, and everything else. And so like people do know, like they have a feel for who I am. And so it attracts a certain type of person to come work mm -hmm. with me anyway. You know, it's funny. I was, I was hiring somebody uh, to, in an analyst role in our company and I love their attitude, love their demeanor, but I just wanted to make sure they had some backbone. So I got them on a call and I walked them through something wrong. It was wrong. What I was saying to them was flat out wrong. Like I was baiting them because if they don't have the backbone to call me out on it, you can't play here. It's true. So, and the guy, the guy says to me, he goes, excuse me. And then he just starts correcting me all the way through, but politely. Right. Yeah. yeah. So for me, that was big check mark because you got to be able to hold your own. I don't, you know, you don't need yes men or yes women totally, around you. Totally. Like the, the biggest mistake people make is surrounding themselves with people that won't give them honest feedback. And I've been guilty of it before too, you know? Yeah. So I, I try to make it very easy to talk to me, very open to be able to give me suggestions and feedback and Honestly, like I learn as much from the guys on my team as they learn from me. I know it. Like they're really good at what they do. Yeah. My favorite thing internally is to say, well, I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> it just, <laughs> you know, that uh, typically smooths over the conversation quite a bit, right? Yeah. Was, no, and I always say like, hey, like I'm, I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to get it right. Let's talk about yeah, this. Yeah. 
also works in my personal relationship too. You know, you just start, start the day, you roll over, honey. I apologize for anything that's going to happen today. <laughs> I need to learn better at that. That's for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about your book here. Cause you got, uh, it's called, you end up where you're heading. Yeah. So why write the book and tell me about the, uh, the hero's journey a little bit. Yeah. So Joseph Campbell, he talked about the hero's journey his whole life is kind of every story that's ever been told. It follows the same pattern, the hero's journey. And the reason I wrote the book is I get asked a lot, you know, people ask me to lunch or whatever. And they're like, Hey, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. Help me get some direction. And it made me think of like people, if you don't know where you're going, that's where you're going to end up. And it's mm-hmm. like, you end up where you're heading. Right. And so mm-hmm. the question I always ask people is, is like, if your life goes perfect for the next five years, if everything you want to happen happens for the next five years, what would your life look like? Mm-hmm. And most people don't have an idea what that is. They have no idea mm-hmm. what their perfect life even would look like. So of course they kind of just, the people that come into their life, stay in their life. The things that happen to them, they respond to. You're in a reactive state. And so what I try to do is help people design their life so that you are proactively building the life that you want. You're attracting to you these things that you're trying to do with your life. Mm. So the book kind of helps you take you on that and basically says like, and I think the problem a lot of people have is they have fear or they have like, they're trying to live up to somebody's expectations, maybe their parents or their religion or whatever it might be. And so I'm trying to help people kind of strip themselves of like, that need for other people's expectations mm-hmm. and to live what they truly authentically want to do, because that's where all the rewards are. Right. We think that playing it safe is going to be amazing or it's going to be safe. Like people are like, I just, I have a job. It's good enough. My relationship's fine. Mm-hmm. Like my house is whatever it's, it is what it is. But at the end of their lives, nobody regrets the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. They regret the, the dreams that still die within them. That's sad. You know, it really is. And so I just <laughs> wanted to help try to inspire people. I get the opportunity to be around a lot of amazing people through my podcast and my network. Yeah. So do something with those relationships and be able to share them. So I talk about a lot of my own stories. I mix it in with these people that I've been able to meet and be able to spend this time around in my life. And then um, we take everybody through that whole pattern, which is the hero's journey. Each chapter is another way. And so it teaches everyone how they can be the hero of their own story. So why do people stay in a stuck place then? Like how? So, I mean, Change happens for one reason, right? The pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Like mm. change is hard. Change is difficult. Change it comes with unknowns. And one of the six human needs is certainty. People want to be certain. So even mm-hmm. if they're in a bad relationship, they're certain that that's their relationship. They know what it is. And that's better for most people than the unknown or being single or not knowing who you're going to have, if you'll have another companion, you know, so change isn't easy first off. And yeah. so what you have to do is you have to create a wise big enough that force you to get uncomfortable because it's just comfortable. Like last weekend, I had a bunch of buddies. We were talking about going to the baseball playoff games. They were game six and seven of the Dodgers. And I'm just a baseball guy. I'm a Cleveland Indians fan, but you know, I just love baseball. And it's the first series they were letting live fans come. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like Mm -hmm. we need to go. So I hit up a few buddies and most of them were all, all of them thought it was a good idea. But the one guy, he's like, you could tell he's just like, he's like, ah, let's just stay home and barbecue. Like, that's the easy thing to do. That's comfortable, right? That doesn't require any stress. Me and my other buddy jumped on a plane, headed out there, went to some games, had, and had like such an amazing time. And so our life got blessed with that experience because we were willing to get uncomfortable or, you know, I mean, it would have been safer to watch it on TV. It would have been cheaper. It would have been easier. I would have been, you know, but you don't get the reward of going and having that experience. And the same thing with anything. It's just, you have to be willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable spot. 
So what I tell people to do is hey, start with little things, like force yourself to do little things that make you uncomfortable. Every day mm. I try to do things that are uncomfortable. You hear some like gurus and, you know, like self-help dudes, like take a cold shower. Like that is a really good way to do it. I hate mm. cold showers. I don't do that, <laughs> but you could do it in so many other ways. Like one thing I always did when I was younger is it was kind of funny is like whenever I saw a pretty woman or a pretty girl, I said, you know, I'm going to talk to her. I have three seconds to approach her no matter what. I'm going to go right. say hi. I'm going to fall on my ass. And I got rejected so many times. I got rejected right. literally hundreds and hundreds of times. But guess what? I didn't get rejected a lot too. And so all of a sudden I had all these amazing right. people in my life, but it, it was that uncomfortability. It's like putting myself in an uncomfortable spot. So now it's very difficult for me to put myself in an uncomfortable place because I've been, it's now, uh, I just got back from Belize was the 70th country I've been to. Mm. And I'll put myself in these positions to be uncomfortable. Like I purposely want to do that. Last year, I had the opportunity to be a part of a mastermind. And I honestly was like way more expensive than I ever should have paid to go be a part of it. Mm. But all the guys that are doing the stuff I want to do, we're going to be there. I was like, shit, I got to go do this. And so the amount of money it took, I mean, it was a lot of money to go to this, made me uncomfortable. And then yeah. I got there and I didn't have any of my people that edify me. I didn't have any of my boys, I didn't have any of my friends yeah. and kind of puff me up or whatever. And so I was just completely uncomfortable. Yeah. And there was a moment in the bathroom. I was going to the bathroom. We were actually at Dan Bilzerian's house of all places doing this event. And I'm in the bathroom and I'm like super uncomfortable. And I'm like, mm -hmm. shit, like I'm the guy hiding in the bathroom right now. I've never once in my life been the guy <laughs> hiding in the bathroom. And I kind of sat in it for a second. Right. I was like, all right, this is cool. And then I, I said, okay, now go and get the growth that you came here for. And I went out and I had a conversation with Aubrey Marcus and Jim Quick and Prince EA and Jordan Belfort and all these amazing people that were all there. I ended up getting to know all of them. It was really cool. And I kind of told Jim Quick, um, who just wrote the book Limitless. He's you know one of the top trainer dudes in the world. And he asked me the same night, he's like, what are you excited about right now? That was his opening question, which I thought was really cool. And I told him this experience I just had and like how I was uncomfortable and how I, I'm like, I, I had to pay all this money just to get uncomfortable and be here. And yeah. I'm like, he kind of laughed at me. It was just like kind of a funny moment for us. But anyway, so getting uncomfortable anytime you can mm -hmm. is going to be helpful. One of the biggest problems that youth has today, and uh, I was listening uh, to a podcast, they talked about this the other day, as I said, kids don't have the opportunity to just sit and be uncomfortable. So for mm -hmm. example, like how many of us had an experience where your parents forgot to pick you up from school? And you're sitting there and it's awkward as hell. And you're like alone. You're not sure what to do. It's too far yeah. to walk home from school. That's like a really good thing for a kid yeah. to experience that like yeah. awkwardness where you're just like, Ugh. he's like, kids don't have that anymore. They'd have a no. phone, call their mom. They'd like just whatever they put their iPod yeah. in and go home. Like, and he just said, like, it's so yeah. valuable to have those experiences where you yeah. just feel that awkwardness and you can like sit in that. And so anytime you can get yourself uncomfortable on purpose, I highly recommend doing it and, you know, pay for experiences that do that. One of the big things I'm working on right now is I'm putting together groups that are, we're going to go do crazy things that make us uncomfortable. You know, I've swam with tiger sharks in the middle of the ocean with no cage. I've bungee jumped off 750 foot bridge. I've ran with the bulls. I've gone undercover to help rescue kids being sex trafficked. Like I've done all these things that make me so uncomfortable. So I'm going to recreate some of these experiences and invite, you know, mm -hmm. people to be a part of this to really get yourself uncomfortable because there's so much value in that. There's so much mm. growth. And that's how you start to do that with other things in your life. Yeah. It's, you know, you think about any of the major growth you've had in your life, it's because you are uncomfortable. Now, granted, you may have not caused that discomfort, but because you're in that circumstance, you now have to work your way through it. You didn't cause the financial difficulty you had when you were in your early twenties, but you definitely had to deal with it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, people don't choose to have their parents get divorced, but they end up dealing with it. Uh, in my circumstances, I was six years old when we migrated from uh, Europe to North America and we didn't speak the language. You know, dad's working three in the morning till 9 p.m. And, and doing it again. Like those situations are thrust upon you. But to your point, so many people nowadays, I mean, you, you don't have to leave the house for anything. I mean, you can, uh, you know, between yeah, ordering your groceries. Like kids are never bored. They're never uncomfortable. Yeah. Like one of the things I like to do if I'm waiting for somebody at a restaurant or at a party or something like that, you, yeah. you see everybody pull their phone on just because yeah. I like to just sit there and I like to just stand there and, it's, and I feel yeah. uncomfortable. And I'm like, uh. it's like I had a life coach once and he was helping me get comfortable being uncomfortable doing things by myself. And so he would mm-hmm. make me go to a movie by myself. No mm-hmm. shit. Like just sit there by myself. I would like be like, oh, I swear I hope nobody sees me. Like I remember one time, you know, first time I had to do it, I went to like a matinee at like four in the afternoon in the middle of my work day. I've never felt so out of place somewhere in my entire <laughs> life. But it's like you kind of sit in it and you're like, okay, this is cool. And then you kind of get more and more comfortable doing those things. Eventually you you come to realize that people don't actually care about what you're doing the way you think they do. <laughs> No, they really don't. I, I had an experience with that the other day. I decided to go the month of September. I didn't do any social media. I only answered my messages. I didn't scroll. I didn't look at any stories or anything. And I didn't post much. I just posted a few times. I didn't read any of the comments. And I realized like people don't really care. Like I, you know, you think you're important. Like people aren't watching what you do all the time. Like you're not. Like people just aren't that caught up in what you're doing. Everyone has their own shit they're worried about. And so it was really funny. I'm like, how many posts have I stressed what to post on Instagram? Cause I was trying to like be consistent. Yeah. And I'm like, no one gives a shit. It just doesn't matter. If you want to post something, post it. If you don't, then don't. But you know, it's just funny because we think we're more important than we are. You know, I, a friend of mine, we were out for an entire day. At the end of the day, comes home, his wife tells him that his fly's been open the whole day. Nobody noticed. You know, we're out the whole yeah. day. Nobody yeah. noticed. At that moment, it's like no one cares. That, that's kind of the point. Everyone's got their own stuff to deal with, right? So, yeah. So, uh, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about here before we uh, we sign off was uh, the charity work that you do because it's actually really interesting, and uh, I, I never actually heard of uh, the group. So, it's it's called uh, the Child Liberation Foundation. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? And- yeah, so there's, I'm part of a team that we basically have had the opportunity over the last couple of years to go undercover and help rescue kids that are being sex trafficked in foreign countries. And we work together with other organizations. Like we actually worked with a group called Operation Underground Railroad and then the Child Liberation Foundation. What we would do is essentially go down there, pretending to be the Johns to get these kids and find the traffickers. And then we would do a sting operation and get them, you know, arrested and rescue wow. the kids that were being traffic. So yeah, I've had the opportunity now to, to, again, to do that almost a dozen times and help to rescue, you know, over about a hundred kids. And it's just a huge issue. And I'm just a small part of this group that would help out, but there's a lot of groups that are, you know, doing a lot of great work with it. And so, yeah, the Child Liberation Foundation is one that um, I support that it's been doing that quite a bit. How do you keep your composure in a situation like that? Yeah. I mean, you have to just pretend you're acting like honestly. Right. Um, and I'm not the one that has to do the like upfront talking like that part would be really hard for me. I realized very quickly I was not going to be able to do that. Right. So the guy that I always go with, his name's Paul. The guy cracks me up, but he's really good at the talking part. I'm more mm-hmm. like play off of him and stuff. And it's actually interesting because we have to set up a relationship with these dudes. Right. And there's two types of traffickers, I guess. Like, I don't know if I can get into this or whatever, but I can real quick is there's bad guys and then there's like evil guys and it is very different like the bad guys are like they're idiots they're trying to take advantage of the fact that they have access to 
traffic a couple of people, but they're not out there. Like it's not an evil enterprise. And then you're opportunists. Exactly right. The other group, they are, they're evil. They're kidnapping. They'll do whatever they're threatening. They're wow. do whatever they need to do to make this happen. And it is very different, but we have to like become friends with these people. So they trust us. Right. And I've had experiences like where you're, you know, you're working on covering, like you just have these human moments, like this moment of empathy for this one guy. I remember it was just an idiot. He's just an opportunistic guy. Mm. He's a nice kid though. Like, meant well but he was just an idiot and um i remember like they came into they brought the girls into this party and i knew within 20 minutes these guys were going to be getting arrested we're going to do the takedown and i had this like moment of like just feeling sorry for him and then he opened his mouth and started talking again and saying what we're going to do to the girls and i was like yeah this guy's got to go but like there was that moment for just a brief minute that you know i just was like damn man why'd you go here you know like why'd you have to go down this route you get all the same emotions you would get in a normal situation but you have to understand and we never see any of the girls getting actually trafficked like we don't see anything happening nothing's actually going down so that probably makes it a lot easier right we're not seeing the acts being done if that makes sense and so we're never actually to that point and so that probably helps us to hold our composure but yeah man you really i mean we've had times i had one time where i mean we thought we were in big trouble and it was and you had i had to actually keep fighting the guy we were arguing over the price per child and our only cover is that they have to believe what we're doing. And so I'm like getting into it with this guy. I'm like, no, nah, that's way too much money, man. We, right. you know, and he's no, it's not like I, and they're like, we'll just go find somebody else. He's like, I run things in this town. And we're like, well, if you run things, you don't run it very well. You could, and we're, I mean, we're like, but it was like how a real conversation would go. Right. Eventually, you know, he, the greed always kind of would help us out that they want to get paid. And so he's like, fine, I'll whatever. And, and so, but that was, it gets pretty intense. Yeah. Like you, you're an actor though. Like, and you're acting that's the best way i can put it i i'm just trying to think through what the dialogue would even look like and i don't want to go down that path but yeah no it's it's exactly what you would think how did you get into that cause like how how did that happen i just heard about it so i talk about this in the book so people say like how do i know which road to go down right you you i talk about not going down the safe path and what happens is in life the universe is going to give you these little nudges you're going to get this moment where just kind of a poke in the ribs you're like Oh, that's uncomfortable. Am I really supposed to go do that? Like right. whether it's moved to a foreign country, like your parents probably got, or if yeah. it's, for me, I heard that same Paul guy speaking about this cause. It was, they'd been in, you know, it's about five, six years ago. Yeah. And I just knew I had to be a part of it. I got that nudge and I just said, I'm go- I know what skills and abilities and network and all these things I have to my disposal. Yeah. I'm going to use this for some good. And so I just made myself an asset. I did everything I could to create as much value for this group as possible. And yeah. eventually they let me go, did a good job with them. They really liked having me there. And so I got the opportunity to be a part of several other um, operations. But, and that's why it's important to be in tune with what's going on. Like when you get that little nudge, when you get that little poke in the ribs, listen to it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for your parents, it was moved to Canada or whatever. And for me, it was be a part of this group. But when I heard that guy speak, I just said, I have to do this. I have to be a part of it. Wow. Well, I mean, kudos to you. That that's an incredibly noble, well done. So, what's next for Jimmy? Then, what is the next step? What is the next path? The next move? Yeah. And so, again, I'm always trying to be uncomfortable. And so, the next thing <laughs> for me, again, I told you, I want to start doing those groups and all that fun stuff. Yeah. But the other thing I want to do is, I really want to slow down. Um, I've been foot full throttle for 20 years, and right. so the next part of my life is actually slowing down and spending less time going wide with everybody and everything and some more time going deep, um, both with myself and with my key relationships, my best friends and my family and, and just really settling down, spending more time in silence, spending more time, the very things I'm talking about being bored because to me, 
I'm more comfortable now in chaos than I am in silence. And so for me, right. the next step is going to be to actually slow everything down. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I recently interviewed a former Marine that his job was to go out and uh, check uh, in front of the tanks for the bombs. <laughs> so in other words, he was, you know, the, the bait. The bait. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he'd gone on and written uh, written a book, and uh, you know, done a lot of interesting things. But he learned about uh, the power of stillness, mm-hmm. because nothing forces you to be still and present more than looking for mines, mines in yeah. front of a tank, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's the next stage of my life. Excellent, Jimmy. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today. If people want to follow up with you, learn more about your world, your business, your what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way, if you want to like ask me a question or reach out something, I, I get back to everybody on Instagram. My Instagram is just Mr. Jimmy Rex. Okay. Um, and I always respond to people like I did with you. That's how we met. But also um, check out my podcast. It's just the Jimmy Rex show. And yeah, we have, you know, five or six episodes a month. We have some amazing, every week is somebody amazing. And uh, that's probably the best way to, to kind of follow me or, um, but yeah, my Instagram, I would love to, to hear from anybody that's got questions or I can help. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Jimmy, thanks again. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much. Yeah.